She made her entrance into a room much like this one, a gathering of folks around Jesus. But she had a reputation as a wayward woman, woman of the streets, someone of ill repute. But she came boldly through those doors because she had a left gift for Jesus. But as she drew near to him, she was absolutely overwhelmed with emotion. Her tears began to flow, dripping down on Jesus' dirty feet, at which point they became muddy. Without hesitation, she dropped to her knees, took down her hair, and she began to wash his feet. Then she began to kiss his feet. And then she poured out that love gift, perfume, over her beloved Jesus' feet. She exchanged her glory, what little she had, so that he would have the best feet at the party. Meanwhile, a guy named Simon, a Pharisee, is taking in this scene. And you know what he's thinking? How could he let a sinner like that touch him? Jesus knew his thoughts. He said, Simon, I have a story to tell you. Two bankers. There were two men who owed money to a banker. One owed 50 bucks. The other owed 50,000. And neither could pay. So the banker decided to forgive the debt of both. So Simon, what do you think? Who will love the banker more? point Simon kind of sputters out the one with the greater debt I guess Jesus says good answer Simon at this point Jesus who is talking to Simon turns to the woman but continues to talk to Simon and Jesus says Simon do you see this woman of course, Simon has been watching this woman ever since she walked through the door. But Jesus, at this moment, is inviting Simon to look at her through his eyes. And Jesus says, Simon, when I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet. But she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But she has not ceased to kiss me from the moment she came in the door. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with oil, with perfume. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Do you hear what Jesus is saying to Simon? He's saying, Simon, you have a little love problem. Your little love reveals you don't see your sin, and neither do you see the greatness of the forgiveness I am offering. But not this woman. She loves much. Why? Because she knows she has been forgiven so much. And Simon, she's a testimony, not that I'm just the best banker I've ever met, but that I'm the savior of the whole world. Imagine being Simon. But now imagine being that woman. What an affirmation she gets as she stands in this room with people looking at her with ill repute with her hair 
an oily, matted, dirty mess. And Jesus looks at her, <laughs> and she knew what it was like to have men lay their eyes on her. But here, for the first time in her whole life, she has a man looking at her with nothing but pure love, and he says, do you see this woman? Simon, you're right about her sins, but you don't know the half of it, in fact. But I love this woman so much, I'm going to go to the cross for her. But until then, just listen to me brag about her amazing love. Friends, let's use this scene to step into 1 John chapter 4, where the disciple Jesus loved expands on the amazing thing God's love is. Now hear the word of our God, 1 John chapter 4. This printer your bulletin will start in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. We will stop right there. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to a text that is far beyond our ability to grasp. So we bow our knees before you, Father, and we ask and pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you will help us to appropriate the height, the depth, the width, the length of the amazing love you have for us in Jesus Christ. We don't have the power to do this on our own. Do this that we might be filled to the full measure of your love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're just joining us, I'm Joel, and we're in a series in 1 John called light, love, and life. And now we're full on into the love section of John's letter. Actually, 16 times the word love appears and all the way up through verse 16, over 30 times by the time you get to chapter 5, verse 3. It's an important topic because every one of us and everyone you meet is hardwired for love. That's what I know about each and every one of you and every person I meet. You're hardwired for love. Number one, you want to know that you're loved by God, like in real right relationship that you can touch the divine. You want to experience his affection for you. And I say that to you if you're a not yet Christian as well. Number two, you want to love others in the world. You want to impact people you know in such a way that they're better off for having known you and you want to have a sense of belonging, mutual affection. I know that you want to love and you want to be loved because humanity is hardwired for love. The Beatles were once tasked with uh, writing a simple song that could be universally understood. 
So on July 25, 1967, before an audience of 400 million, you know what they performed for the first time? All you need is love. The Beatles understood our universal need, but here's the problem. The love we crave remains elusive. Bump, ba -da -da -dum. That's why two decades later, and I won't try and sing it, Foreigner sang, I want to know what love is. I want you to show me. Our culture was already confused at what love was, leaving the 60s and all the love there. And why often our own love efforts then were unrequited. What's love but a secondhand emotion? Sings a heartbroken Tina Turner. Remember the songs of the 80s? Today, elusive love and love illusion lead to nothing but love confusion, as much as it did in John's day, actually. Folks today, what do they do? They base love on emotions, on good motives, on attraction. Is that love? What is love? Says Hathaway in the 90s. Love can mean so many things, right? I can say I love baseball one minute, and the next minute say I love Jamie, my wife. And you know I'm not meaning the same thing. Two months into the season, I stopped paying attention to the White Sox, and I don't even know if I'll watch them in April. <laughs> but my love for Jamie, you know it is to be perpetual, for better or for worse. Seems that even church people today are confused about love. That's the audience John, John is writing to, by the way. Many churches today say love is about tolerance, by being accepting unconditionally, like our culture actually, right? I accept whatever you are. Whatever floats your boat, I'm fine with. Not so, say some churches, right? Like Simon the Pharisee. Remember him? Simon's a serious church guy. His love for God, I mean, was like this. Think about it. Observable obedience in front of everyone. Doctrinal devotion. This was his life. But being dutiful and intellectual didn't prevent him from being under-relational. It was obvious he had little love for Jesus and for those Jesus loved. That's why John is writing this section. He's encouraging a church that has lost that love and feeling. There had been a church split. Members had embraced false teachings about Jesus and walked away. Can you imagine how hard it would be to be part of a new community built around Jesus to have broken bread with them, been baptized, identified with them, invested your life in these people, and then to feel your heart torn out as they walk away. This church is wondering, how can we continue to love? In fact, what is love? That's actually why John and the New Testament writers came up with a new word for love. I was thinking maybe we need to come up with that myself, but don't put that on me. Agape is this word they began to use in the New Testament, to describe Christian love, a love that is palpably different than all the world's love. So what is it? Well, I'm simply going to say at this point, it's the real love that we as humans are hardwired for. Agape is the real love that humanity is hardwired for. And we're going to ex explore agape love. I have my sermon notes for the next two weeks. It might be three or four, because obviously I, I'm not doing the whole text that I had. God gave me a different message. I'm going to give you three headings today to understand agape love. First, it's supernatural. We'll see in verses 7 and 8, love's source is Almighty God, Father God. 
Second, it's sacrificial. In verses 9 and 10, we'll see that love is demonstrated in the son's sacrifice for our sins. And third, it's sanctifying. We'll see in the final two verses, it's the work of the Holy Spirit, who John will talk about right immediately after that. We'll look at that next week. So let's begin with supernatural. Verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. John here twice tells us that God is the source of agape love. That means love is not a resource we can run out of. Love is supernatural because love is from God. Love's source is the infinite God. It's part of who God is. John Piper gives this illustration. Love is from God the way heat is from fire or the way light is from the sun. Love belongs to God's nature. The sun gives light because it is light and fire gives heat because it is heat. Love is properly found in the supernatural, in God's nature. John is saying God is the source of all love. We won't find it here on earth of ourselves. And because that's true, we can draw two conclusions. Number one, when you as a Christian love others, it's evidence of your new birth. Guess what? You have been supernaturalized. You have been supernaturalized. You're a partaker of the divine nature, as Peter says, and your continuing love in the midst of all the stuff going on is proof of your new birth. By the way, that's why our not yet Christian neighbors can only love in a limited way why they can be one minute devoted spouses, devoted parents, and then next minute not. We shouldn't shake our heads at them. They're doing the best they can from the resources they got. Your loveless neighbor, to use Piper's illustration, is like a coal trying to give off heat, but no longer in the fire pit. He's a coal, separated, thrown off into the icy frost of this cold world. Our neighbors separated from God are separated from the source of heat. So don't shake your head at them. Pity them. Plead with them. And pray that they will draw near to God. See John's second conclusion? You love because you know God. And to know means intimate relationship. This Bible is an invitation to know God really and personally. And we can marvel that we can love. Wow. I have loving hands for my neighbors. They're warm. Why? Because I'm close to the fire. You can't help but love when you spend intimate time with your Heavenly Father. And as you come to know Him more, you come to know more love and love for people. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Thursday night we're digging into Ephesians 3.14, Paul's prayer where he kneels before the Heavenly Father. We're digging into this rich passage. We're drawing near to our Father in prayer. And I found myself begging my Father for people in new ways I didn't love them before. I had new situations on my heart that people brought. I could feel affection welling up in my heart for them, for some of you here, for others. What was that all about? The heat in my heart was a result of drawing near to the love source, to my Heavenly Father. I'm feeling kind of warm right now, actually. Because <laughs> I want to spread the agape heat. I want to shine God's light into the world. When God sent his son, 
It was the arrival of an unlimited heat source into a world of winter. We're supernaturalized children of God. So we can head out to those who are still stuck in the cold. We're privileged to participate in saving dying colds by showing them Jesus Christ. We show our world the Father who sent his Son. God is love. To those longing for love, and they are, listen to the songs. We invite them to know our Heavenly Father. God is love. And now, here's how we know it. Verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. We should all be strapping ourselves in our seats right now. This is an amazing statement. Think about what it means that God sent his only son into our broken world. Between September 1940, here's an illustration. Between September 1940 and May of 1941, the city of London had bombs rained down on them night after night after night. The German Air Force dropped countless payloads of destruction on a helpless population. Every day, you would walk out and you would see which buildings on your block had taken the hit. And then came all the rescue missions, right? Rescue operations, you have to go through the rubble and search for survivors. And think about what that is. It's risky work, it's difficult, it's also gruesome. Now imagine you were that fateful night and your building gets hit and you find yourself suddenly trapped under a mountain of rocks in the darkness, and they're crushing you to death. You're injured, you're unable to escape the pressing weight, you're running out of air, and you're crying out, and suddenly you hear a noise above you. You hear, and then a little bit more noise, and then scuffling, and you hear some grunting, and it gets louder and louder, and someone's up there laboring, and slowly the weight's lifting off of you. And finally, that last boulder is removed, the light shines in, a hand reaches down, and you see your rescuer's face. And it's the smiling face of Winston Churchill. <laughs> what would go through your heart and your mind at that moment? Winston Churchill was England's prime minister, and he was known to emerge from his bunker on 10 Downing Street, and he would join the rescue operations. Imagine being a victim and being rescued by Winston Churchill. I mean, this guy has a lot of important things to do. A kingdom to rule over, right? Yet your life was of such value that he left everything to come and save you alone. That's nothing compared to God's love stooping down to take away sin's crushing load off of each and every one of you. The Greek in verse 9 is monogenes. That means only begotten. You remember John 3.16? Jesus is God's utterly unique son. The most glorious. And he's not a creation. He is God. Only begotten son. Jesus was sent as the father's utterly unique son. Left heaven to come down to earth to save you. How do you know love? We see love in Jesus' sacrifice of his status to become your saving servant. To come and serve you. For home meditation, go home and read Philippians 2, verses 6 through 11. That's your homework. Think about that woman in Simon's house. 
She somehow got this. She understood something of the uniqueness of Jesus. Her life reputation was beyond repair. She's under the crushing load of guilt and shame. And she saw the face of love in God's son and Jesus Christ, that he had come to rescue her, that he had become flesh and blood like us. Calvin talks about how it's no common thing, no common thing for the son of God to become man. He writes, his task was so to restore us to God's grace as to make the children of men children of God, the heirs of Gehenna, heirs of the heavenly kingdom. Who could have done this had not the self-same Son of God become the Son of Man and had not so taken what was ours as to impart what was his to us and to make what was his by nature ours by grace? What Calvin is saying is that Jesus became all we are by nature so that we could become all he is by grace alone. And John says it in just seven amazing words. So that we might live through him. Ponder that. Ponder what it means that you get to live through Jesus. That means all that Jesus has access to, you have access to. Well, what's that, Joel? Daily nonstop fellowship with the Father. Experiencing his love. We share in his victory over sin, over shame, over so much more. The New Testament read is just full of the glorious realities of what it means to live through Jesus Christ. Listen to Jesus tell you what it means to live through him. Jesus says to you, Cindy, through me, you have peace with God. Romans 5.1. Mike, through me, Jesus says, you are God's possession. Rex, Jesus says, through me, Rex, you are dead to sin and alive to Christ. Mark, through Christ, you are free from the desires of the flesh. Galatians 5.24. John, through Christ, you are declared righteous. Danny, through Christ, you are secure in him. That's what Jesus says to you. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. Friends, through Jesus Christ, you are children of God. You are heirs of God, Romans 8, 17. Through Christ, you are blessed with every spiritual blessing, Ephesians 1, 3. Through Christ, everyone here is citizens of heaven, Philippians 3, 20. Through Jesus, he is saying, you are now declared blameless and innocent, Philippians 2, 15. Through Christ, you walk out of here as lights to the world. Matthew 5, 14 and 15. And through Christ, each and every one of you, he says you are loved by God. 1 John 4, 10. We see that in all these things, Christ shows his love. And you live now through him because he sacrificed his status in order to raise you up to be like himself. But there's more. I've only just gotten started. John goes further now to how we know love supremely. Verse 10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now pause on this, because John starts off like he did before. In this is love, and now we expect him to explain it. But John doesn't do that. He actually inserts this negative statement 
about us before getting to what love is. So let me help us with this. So I want everyone here to pause for just a minute and think about your enemy. Think about someone who's out to get you. Maybe they hurt you. Think about someone who neglected you, sought to ruin your reputation. Think about that person you actually came to church to put out of your mind right now. I want you to bring that person into the room. Maybe it's a politician. Maybe it's an abuser. You got someone in your mind? Is it real? Is it raw? Now I want you to ask yourself this question. What could I do to bless them? To bless my enemy? What is something that I could grit my teeth and do to better their life? Now I want you to raise your hand if your answer was anywhere in the ballpark of this. I will send my child to die for them. I will sacrifice someone I love for this, my enemy. I didn't see any hands raised. Friends, this is how incredible God's love is compared to the best we can do. The Father sent his own son to be sacrificed for you. And it had zero to do with your love for God. We read Romans 5. We just read it earlier about our weakness. Actually, read on further in that section where we hear that by nature we were God's enemies because we don't love God. It's not that we love God. That's why if you read John's gospel, he actually never names himself. How does John identify himself when you read through his gospel? How does he identify himself? He gives himself the title, the disciple Jesus loved. Now think about that. And I used to think at first blush, I'm like, man, this dude's sort of arrogant. I'm the disciple Jesus loved. Most folks today do the opposite. If you say, oh, you're a disciple? Yes, I love God. That's why. They identify themselves that way, right? And that's good and true. But, but maybe not. You ever found your love for God fickle? And then we would not be so confident that we're Christians. John's point is that our love for God is not good news. Because that love hasn't even always been the case. That is why John doesn't call himself the disciple who loved Jesus, but the disciple who Jesus loved. It's the same thing the sinful woman discovered. Because the good news, my friends, is not that we have loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, propitiation, we've got to pause there for a second. This word, I know, it's a hard word. We don't hear it. It means to appease anger. It means to satisfy justice, to, to turn away wrath. Propitiation is what took place when Jesus hung on that cross like a criminal. Naked, exposed, bleeding, gasping for air before a mocking crowd. And there at the cross, then propitiation happened. The son's arms outstended, extended in love for all you and I. You know what happened at that point? Father God stuck a funnel into the heart of his own son and poured in all the wrath to the dregs of everything that he was angry about that you and I have ever done into the heart of his only begotten beloved son so that you and I could be forgiven. Do you see why the cross is the bridge so that those stranded in sin can cross over and come to know the Father's love, his affection? right relationship think about how the world thinks about love 
And you would think that a violent execution would be the last place you would find the greatest act of love. But the cross of Christ is precisely where the New Testament locates it. This is not a love of our world based on our motives or our emotions. It finds its beginning with the merciful heart of our creator who didn't want his beloved humanity to be condemned to hell forever. So he sent Jesus to become our sin substitute so that you and I can be rightly related with God. Stott writes, and I put this quote in our bulletin, for the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. You see what happened in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve, our first parents, decided we're going to be like God and became rebels? And what God had to do to completely reverse that at a second tree where his beloved son died for us? This is love. God sacrificing himself so we could be set free from all sin and all shame. And now, we move to our third section where John calls us to do the same. Verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Our last heading, love is not only sacrificial, but it's close cousin, sanctifying, sanctifying. The cross actually tells us about our justification, God's one-time act in declaring us righteous, right in Jesus Christ. Sanctification, what's that? It's the daily work where we die to sin more and more and live to be like Jesus. Sanctification, by the way, though, just like justification, is also 100% God, the Holy Spirit in the next section. The Holy Spirit gives you all the new desires. He gets all the credit for that. He gives us the grace that we need when we need it. Sanctification is 100% God and 100% you because we experience it. We work with God as he teaches us to love. We see our love from the get-go cannot be tolerance. I just want to make that clear because our love is shaped by the cross. Folks today justify all sorts of things in the name of love. The love at Calvary's cross actually keeps us from being conned by all the counterfeit loves out there. You see, tolerating anything God defines as sin cannot be loved because Jesus died for it. Love cannot be tolerance of anything God forbids. Why, Joel? The cross tells us that love is actually sin's opposite. We must take serious sin. We cannot let one another live in sin and say we're actually loving them. If your brother or sister is doing evil and you do nothing, you're actually hating them. Now, it's different with unbelievers, those outside the church. This is where the church often goes wrong. We're condemning the world instead of loving them. We actually show tolerance to unbelievers. We say anyone is welcome to Heart City Church. There's never a person who is too big a sinner to come and join us for worship, to gather around Jesus. But only people who want to be disciples can become members here. Membership is a really good thing. Someone can come up to me, Pastor Joel, and say, Pastor Joel, I heard that so-and-so was at your church and he's been going for like the last month and a half. Do you know that they're doing this evil thing, that they did this? Do you know what they're up to, what they just did the other day? 
And I can say, I'm so happy you told me that we have sinners coming to hear the good news. Jesus stands in our pulpit every single Sunday and preaches himself to be the savior of sinners. And we hope that one day they will choose to become a disciple and can become a member. Because we at Heart City take sin seriously because every sin we commit was a pain that Jesus endured. And we're so thankful for what Jesus did for us that we are going to be intolerant of sin. Friends, here's the thing. When you get this, when you take in how much you're loved, what God did to make you accepted a beloved child, you lose your taste for sin when you take it in. And we need to take it in more and more. Think of sin like orange juice, but there's nothing good, so take out the vitamin C. Orange juice, it's sweet, but you know that you just drink it nonstop, it'll rot your teeth, right? Well, the gospel is like toothpaste that cleanses your teeth, freshens your mouth. Now, have you ever tried to drink orange juice after brushing your teeth? It's awful. I heard someone say, yuck. That's what sin is supposed to become when you take in how much you're loved and been cleansed by God. And we can turn from sin and die to self, loving one another as we take in Jesus' love for us. So let's move on to our last verse, verse 12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. I couldn't hardly sleep over this verse last night. There are four phrases, four thoughts, and one seems to stand alone and kind of come out of nowhere. It seems like a change of thought when John says, no one has ever seen God. And John then connects it to how we are to love. What's the connection? Well, if we love one another, we know two things are true. Number one, God abides in us, and number two, his love is perfecting us. So here's John's point. Jesus came, nobody's ever seen God, and he came and made the invisible God known to the world. And you and I are to do the same by loving all the days that we have on earth. You've been given today, you don't know about anything more, but every day we should get up and thinking, how am I to be loving like Jesus did, making God's love known to the world? Actually, I looked at Jesus last day in John 13, Verse 1, it says, When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus loved to the very end of his earthly life, and so should we. But I got stuck on, notice where Jesus is going. We would write, if I was writing it, Jesus was departing earth to go to heaven. But John writes, he's departing this world to go to the Father. I think we probably need to start thinking this way. Heaven is more of a person and less than a place. Heaven is not where I get to see all my loved ones and go golfing or whatever your thing is. No, heaven's a person, the Father. And then God brought something incredible to me this morning in the final chapter of the Bible, also written by John. John wrote in Revelation 22, verse 4, we heard, no one has ever seen God. Revelation 22, 4, we will see his face. That's our eternity. That's what heaven is, seeing God's face. That God that no one has seen, John writes in our text, we will one day see, and that is heaven. So taking the stunning reality that the God who is heaven 
abides in us as we love. I've been pondering this idea of abiding, and I think it's better experienced than explained. John's point, though, is that heaven comes down every time we love like Jesus. Heaven comes down to earth. And the perfected part, he achieves his goal in us more and more. God created you to do mattering things that nobody else he's created for. And he wants you to step into those. Now, some of you may be thinking, here it is, Joel, the application part. Pastor Joel, I have loved people and it has not felt like heaven. It's felt like hell. Pastor Joel, I love, and I don't feel like God is accomplishing anything in me. <laughs> so what you're telling me is that your love feels painful like sacrifice and exhausting like sanctification. Friends, rejoice. Because that actually means that you are loving like John is calling us to love here in 1 John 4. <laughs> and the good news is you have an infinite supply of that love available to you. It's not dependent upon you and your abilities. Because God is the source and he promises to abide. You'll experience that as you love. Do you want to experience God more and more in your life? God's inviting you to do that. And friends, Elkhart or wherever you're from, it's a short step from hell. Elkhart is a short step from hell. But we have opportunities in front of us, each and every one of us, by loving, to bring heaven down to our neighbors. We have opportunities to show folks previews of the future film, the feature film Heaven, all right? You see the previews before the movies, right? You get excited, I want to see that. That's what people should see in us. Previews of the feature film that's going to be so glorious. Who is God calling you to love this week? That's, that's our application. Who are you called to give a preview of heaven to, to the God they can't see? Maybe it'll be a homeless person, and you just go out and buy them a meal and bring them a meal. And they say, well, why, 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 why do you do this? Because in heaven, there's going to be no hungry people. I just wanted you to see that for just a second. And any of us can do it. So long as we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and his love, a woman of ill repute walked into a place of goody two-shoes where she didn't belong and revealed the love of God as she kept her eyes fixed on the face of Jesus Christ. So who is God calling you to love this week? I want to hear stories about folks who are suddenly able to sing with Etta James, and I won't try and sing this either, at last. <laughs> love has come along. Friends, God desires to abide in this world and in us, and he wants to live through us. The reality of God, think about it, who exists in all times, in all places, he's beyond us. The perfect holiness of God, the goodness, peace, the new creation, Jesus Christ, the mystery of God in his unlimited life wants to take up residence in you. So I want to close with our meditation verse from November, where Jesus affirms that him and the Father want to come and reside in you. So let us all recite together our November meditation underneath our sermon text. Let us say with Jesus, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Friends, Jesus and the heavenly father want to move in and bring heaven 
into your life and into our world. So there's your take home. Believe in Jesus. Look to his love. See how his word today is calling you to new love this week. And then just simply trust and obey. Choose sanctification, sacrifice, and trust God to be your source of love. And then please come tell me or someone else in church what you've experienced because I look forward to hearing more and more stories of God's love being perfected in you. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what manner of love is this that we should be called your children and such we are. And we look forward to that day when our Lord Jesus returns and we will be made like him because we shall see him as he is. And Father, we need you to continue to give us this hope, to fuel this hope, that we might be made pure as he is pure. I pray that right now you'll give us all just a greater sense of your love for us in Christ Jesus. And help us then to see those around us who have yet to know or experience that love. Or maybe they have, but right now they've, they've moved away and they're getting cold. I pray that we might be those hands, those feet that can go to them and bring the warmth of our Lord Jesus Christ to shine into their lives. Help us to do mattering things that you've called us to do, that you've good works you've set before us, that you've called us to do. We ask and pray you'll help us to do this, that not only we might experience and know you more and love you better, but that others who you've given to Jesus might come to know that as well. We pray this in his name. Amen.